I'd like for you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Ephesians, chapter 6. And we're almost there. We just have two more Sundays in this study uh, on Ephesians, uh, growing up into Christ. And it has been quite the ride. We've been learning what it means to walk in a manner worthy uh, to the call, of the call to which we've been called. And, and Paul has been explaining to us that God is forming a new humanity. And our mode of relating to each other in this new humanity is one of sacrificial love. Not the sentimental mush that the world calls love. No. Concrete actions of seeking another's well-being. That's the kind of love we're being called to. And we're also being called to live lives of mutual submission. Submitting ourselves one to another, as Paul says, out of reverence to Christ. Mutual submission is the framework for every other command that Paul gives in the book of Ephesians. It is the basis by which he is laying out all of these, these instructions to us as a new humanity uh, for in chapter 4 and, and 5 and 6. We know this because last week we looked at wives. Submit yourselves to your own husbands as to the Lord. And that's a critical statement. Submit yourselves to your own husbands, wives, as to the Lord. If you don't have that phrase on it, Submission is not only a really bad deal, it's not even possible. It takes us being as unto the Lord for any of this to work. And then he says to husbands, and boy, we got a sock right between the eyes last week, that we're to actually love our wives like Christ loved the church. He points us to the cross where Jesus loves the church so much that he laid down his life for her. This all means that we're going to have to die to self-interests. It's not what the world tells us. The world tells us that you should get all that you want. If you want it, you deserve it. Self-centered interests are good in the world's mind. But in the gospel kingdom, in the new humanity that is being formed, self-interests are destructive. They don't work in our favor. They actually work against us. Paul is saying, you've got to lay down your own agenda. You've got to put it aside. And you've got to be as Christ was. Have his mind, which though he was in the form of God, did not equate equality with God as something to be grasped. But rather, he emptied himself. He became nothing. He took on the form of a servant. Do you see how that's the pattern by which we are to live our lives? Paul now turns his attention to families, parents, and children. So all you children, you're here for a reason today. You're here, not in your class, because Paul's going to talk to you. Every kid here that is 12 years of age and under, stand up right now. Stand up. There you go. Come on, stand up, Julianne. Yeah, thank you, Gabe. You're, not, you're older than that. That's all right. You're like a kid. All right, so you can sit back down. Thank you, Jacob. Paul thinks you're really cool. He writes not only to the adults, he's writing to you. Look what Ephesians 6.1 says. Children, 
Obey your parents in the Lord. For this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with the promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. It's really cool that Paul addresses kids. Don't you think? I mean, it's kind of out of the norm. I don't think you'd see any others that would be addressing kids like this. But you see it here. And Paul cares about kids just like Jesus did. You remember Jesus is there and he is teaching and a bunch of parents bring the kids, their kids, to say, maybe Jesus will lay hands on them and pray and bless them. But his disciples said, no, you can't see the master. And Jesus rebuked them. He he scolded them. He said, don't you ever do that. Kids belong with me, for such is the kingdom of God. And Paul now says to children, I have some words for you too, that you are to obey your parents. And he adds three really important words, in the Lord. In the Lord, that is the only basis by which any of this submissive life is going to work. In the Lord, everything we do in this humanity must be done in the Lord. When I submit myself to another, to the authority of another, when wives submit to their husbands, when children obey their parents, when, when servants submit to masters, it must be done in the Lord. It's the only way this is possible. Paul quotes from the Ten Commandments, and he actually quotes the Fifth Commandment. It's the commandment that really hinges the first four commandments with the last five commandments. It's kind of a bridge. You see, the first four commandments and the Ten Commandments had to do with our relationship with God. Thank you. Some of you are listening. And then the last five commandments had to do really with how we were to relate to others. And so this bridge is respecting others, of course, but it connects with how we're to relate to God and how we're to relate to others. And it is just simply that. Obey your honor and your father and mother. Obey in your father and mother. And he says this because it has a promise associated with it. There's a reward that goes with this one. Paul says that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. There's a good promise associated with honoring your parents. Young people, I want to say to you, all of you look at me. Julianne, look at me. Okay? Obey your parents. It's what God would be pleased with. And God has designed for you as a young person, as a child. He wants you to be living long in what his promise is for your life. Children, obey your parents. All right, next one. Fathers, verse 4. Do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And he says something similar to the Colossians. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. And one translation adds, and quit trying. Wow. If you're not careful, mom and dad, you'll cause your kids to quit trying. And that would be devastating. Maybe you're provoking them with inconsistency, with explosive anger of not giving enough praise or speaking too harshly. 
Maybe you provoke them with empty talk, hypocrisy, your own sin package, unrealistic expectations. Remember what Proverbs 18.21 says, the tongue has the power of life and death. The stakes are high, mom and dad. These that you have for approximately 18 to 20 years, okay, maybe 25 these days, you have a lot at risk. And if you end up provoking them before they can even get beyond you, if they get discouraged and they stop trying, then it's going to be really hard for you to win them back over. We have the power of life and death. The way we speak to our kids matters. Instead of bringing them up towards provocation, he says, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, discipline might include a lot of things. It could mean correcting them with your eyes. Any, any parents ever do that? <laughs> you know, kids, you ever seen the eye of, of mom and dad? And they, they look like is, uh-oh. <laughs> they know better. And maybe it's correcting them with words. Um, maybe it's actually putting them in time out. Maybe it's a spanking. The Bible says we ought to do that, not out of anger, not brutally, but correcting them. Because you know what? I felt the Lord spank me a few times. Yeah, <laughs> that's right, Jacob. You, you know it too, don't you, brother? We need to not only Discipline and correct, but we also need to instruct is what he says. And instruction means to talk with them about why this is right, why this is important to God, and to demonstrate them to them what is life all about and how you yourself are learning and growing and how you have made mistakes and how you have to ask for forgiveness and be restored and how we're on this journey together. Do you see how kids could actually be bought into, brought into the plan of God? That's why instruction is as important as discipline. Tim Challey says Dis discipline and instruction, they cover both the positive and negative sides of learning and growing. Helping our children grow from folly to wisdom, from childishness to maturity, from self-centeredness to loving others, and we trust from sin to salvation. Finally, let's look at the last category. This last category is a little bit more dicey, but Paul is still talking with respect to this new mutual submission. Wives, husbands, children, parents, all of those things are possible. Verse 5, bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Now let me just stop right there. And address the elephant in the room. There's no elephant in the room. That's just a saying. Uh, slavery. Your Bible might have this word bondservant translated slave. And that can cause a great deal of confusion. Our country has had a tragic history with slavery. The African slave trade. Somebody pick up the phone. <laughs> it's all right. Don't worry. It's great. I was going to pick up my phone if I could find it. 
I hope I have it somewhere. Oh, there it is. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> so we've had a tragic history with slavery. The African slave trade saw millions upon millions hunted down and captured like animals and taken against their own will and transported in the most gruesome and cruel of environments. Many of them never made it to port. And the ones who did were sold into slavery, worked in harsh conditions, and they, they suffered physical and sexual abuse and many times torture. Our country is still reckoning with this 250-year period of slavery and 90 years of Jim Crow laws and 60 years of equal but the same. We still have reckoning in our country. Racism and hatred is still out there. So you might be thinking as you read these verses from the Apostle Paul, why doesn't he do something about it? Why doesn't he call it out? Why doesn't he draw the line in the sand? Why doesn't he use his platform to speak out against such evil? And does the Bible sanction slavery? Because those 150 years ago in many churches said that it did. We actually have photographs in a church with a Jesus Saves banner over the top and Ku Klux Klanmen all lined up down at the front. The most inconsistent message you could imagine. And they justified their hatred based on these verses. I'm not going to skirt that. Why didn't Paul do more? Well, first of all, the Bible does not endorse or sanction slavery. Let me just put that to rest. It does not in any, by any stretch of the imagination justify the abuse and enslavement of other people in any form or fashion. We are all, men and women, created in the image of God. And any time that you enslave another, you are infringing upon that and you are smacking God in the face and saying to him, his creation isn't what it should be. It dishonors him. So why doesn't Paul call it out? Well, I don't fully know. I know culturally it was a very, very different time. I know that slave uprisings in the Roman Empire were often put down and they were killed. I know that if Paul had given his attention to that as his only message, he may not have been able to proclaim and preach the gospel to the Gentiles as he had been called to do. There's a lot of explanation potentially as to why he didn't use his platform so much. But I do know that there are also a lot of things that are in the Bible resulting from the sin that is in our world that the Lord doesn't immediately dress. But rather, he gives us a plan in how we're to live in the midst of it. The Bible doesn't sanction violence. And yet Jesus says, if they violently strike you on the cheek, to turn to them the other. The Bible doesn't sanction theft. And yet Jesus says, if they take from you your cloak, give to them your tunic. The Bible doesn't sanction abuse. And yet Jesus said, if they make you go with them one mile, go with them too. Paul is not sanctioning slavery here. He's showing the countercultural approach where mercy triumphs over judgment. 
He is calling us to an impractical obedience of loving our enemies and praying for those who persecute us, of forgiving as many times as it takes. That is countercultural. But with that said, it helps to look at these two historical periods of slavery that we have in our minds and see that there are similarities and there are also differences. In both, slaves were property, which is wrong. They were the property of their masters, and these slaves had no rights. The master could do with them whatever he wished, and he could treat them however he wanted with impunity. He, there was no recourse. He could even kill his slave if he chose to, and there would be no ramification for his action. But there are also major differences between these two periods of slavery, the things that Paul is speaking to here in the Ephesian church and does in many others of his writings, and the period of American slavery from the 17th, 18th, and 19th century. One of the biggest differences is that in the Roman Empire, slavery was never connected to a particular race or a people group. A vast majority of enslaved were trying to earn Roman citizenship, and it was a means to save money in order to potentially earn your citizenship. And really, the most slaves were there because they were in serious debt. They had financial trouble, and there weren't banks around the corner to give you a loan. And there weren't government programs to help you out in a hard time. If you were in dire situation... Really, the only option you had was to sell yourself or your kid or your family into slavery. At any given time, as many as one-third of the population in the Roman Empire were slaves, with as many as 50% being slaves at some other point in history. Some estimates between 50 and 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. Now, they could buy back their freedom, and many did. That's why the 50% went down to one-third. But slaves could be all sorts of things, field workers, agricultural workers, domestic servants. They could also be trained in, in business and medicine, and, and they could be scribes or educators. Many slaves were highly educated, and they made tremendous amounts of money for their masters. Some were even offered their freedom, but they preferred to remain slaves because it was such a good deal with where they were. So with that context in mind, let's look at what Paul says to slaves. Verse 5, bondservants, or slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service, as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with the good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, 
knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Four times, did you catch it? Four times Paul says the most powerful truth in these verses. Paul says to slaves, your earthly master doesn't control your life. You have a heavenly master. He's the one in charge. Your earthly master doesn't own you. Jesus does. Verse 5, he says, obey as you would Christ. Verse 6 says, as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Verse 7 says that we're to do these things as to the Lord and not to man. And finally, verse 8 says, you will receive back from the Lord. Which Lord? Your Lord who is in heaven. Paul is speaking to a church where bondservants or slaves and their masters might be sitting right next to each other. They would be sitting there represented, representing Christ in their lives and they were potentially right there in fellowship with each other. And what he is saying is that as a part of this new humanity of mutual submission and and sacrificial love, that we are commanded to support each other, to care for each other, to love each other, to do things for each other, to prefer each other. He's giving them instructions for how this will look, even in the midst of a sinful system in a sinful world. He writes about this in many of his letters, like when he wrote to the Galatians that I mentioned last week. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither or no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So while we may find ourselves in different situations, even in our status in society, we are all equal in the sight of God. And our position is equal in Christ. There is no division that makes you or me or anyone else a first class or a third class citizen. We are all one in Christ. It's also why Paul, who could have used his platform, seemed to do it in a much more subversive way. He wrote about how we should do it inside out, one person to another. And he wrote the shortest book in the New Testament. Anyone know what it is? Philemon. Philemon, it's just like about a third of your page. It's not very long at all. It doesn't even have chapters, just verses. He wrote this on behalf of a runaway slave, Onesimus. And he wrote it to the Christian master of Onesimus, Philemon. Philemon was a convert of Paul's. Paul had led him to the Lord, but Onesimus had escaped from that mastery, from that enslavement, and then found his way to Paul where he himself had had a relationship to the Lord. And now Paul is sending him back to Philemon, and he's saying to Philemon, you have a responsibility here. You're a Christian. You remember, I shared the gospel with you. I could command something of you, but I'm petitioning to your heart. And he's appealing on behalf of a Christian brother. And this is what he says in verse 15 and 16. For perhaps he, Onesimus, 
departed for a while for this purpose. (laughs) Departed a while. He escaped (laughs) and stole something from him. I mean, Philemon could have hunted him down with bounty hunters, could have branded him, could have made him pay all that he had stolen. And Paul's saying to him, maybe he departed for a while for this purpose, that you might receive him forever. No longer as a slave, but no, or no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother. Wow. Paul, you, you rascal, you. Especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. And by the way, he goes on to say, make a room for me. I might be coming soon. See you later, Philemon. We all have equal dignity before God. Onesimus did. Philemon did. And they both had received so much from God, they no longer treated each other the way they had been before. How do we treat people? Do we treat others as second-class citizens? Do we see them as less than than us? Do we think we have advantage over them? We could do this in the workplace. We could do this with our kids. We could do this with other people. But Paul is saying to us, no, be mutually submitted one to another out of reverence to Christ. This is one of those areas where the Bible may have not expressly called for an end to slavery the way that William Wilberforce did or the way that Frederick Douglass did, and thank God they did. But it is still ripping apart the very foundation of slavery by saying each person stands in the image of God with dignity, and we are not to devalue one another. We're rather to submit ourselves one to another. The tapestry of sacrificial love and mutual submission is woven together in this beautiful artwork that Paul is saying, it's a new humanity. We're to be on display for what God has done in us. In every relationship we have, in our marriages, in our families, even in social constructs, in the workplace, we are to live as Christ lived. Not thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought, but rather becoming servants to one another, telling the gospel story with our very lives. May we, as a community of faith, be the household of the gospel, not just with our words, but with our lives and our relationships. May what we do in our marriages and with our kids and honoring our parents and how we treat others outside, may that put us on display for how God's grace changes a people and makes for himself a new humanity, a new family, a new house. I challenge you, all that are listening today, submit yourselves one to another out of reverence to Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen.